uh, with the narrative of Joseph and the narrative of Joseph being that he is the servant who saves. Jesus uh, is a servant who saves. Joseph gives us a picture of that through some of the earliest and clearest writings in the scriptures in which we're already being told to perceive this prophetic truth that there is a servant who saves. We find Joseph here as a man who was um, imprisoned. As we left him there as he was uh, resting in that uh, jail cell, um, rotting away, but still doing what? Serving. Still actually functioning in some service capacity for the jail master. Everywhere Joseph went, he was serving. Whether good, whether bad, whether up or down, he had a servant heart. And God used him mightily for it. It's a lesson for us to definitely consider. In Genesis 40, we pick up now where Joseph uh, is in prison, but he has some visitors come his way. It says this. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, and the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them, again, serving. They, um, they continued for some time in his custody. And one night they both dream. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he said to them, uh, he saw that they were troubled, and so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in his custody of the master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have Dreamed dreams. We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. And so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, shot forth. And the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days and three nights, uh, are three days, and Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in your hand as formerly, when you were his cupbearer. Now only remember me, remember me, when it is well with you. And please do me this kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing, that they should put me in this pit. It's an amazing phrase to say, considering he's in prison. He started off in the pit. But Joseph sees it all together. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, 
Unfortunately, it's not the same. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream, and there were three uh, cake baskets on my head. And the utmost basket, there was all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up his head for you, lift up his head from you, and hang you on a tree. And the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and placed the cup, in, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, and he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And that is an important way to end the story. We're told that the chief cupbearer, though he was given this interpretation and particularly uh, asked or charged to not forget Joseph, uh, he did forget Joseph. And the question to consider is a very relevant one that we would all be able to relate to in some form or fashion, which is, does God forget you? And we all know, as we did before, that the answer is no. And we all know that if we whisper that question again, when no one else is listening or looking, that the answer is probably not. Or maybe he hasn't forgotten me. See, it depends on your circumstance. There are moments, perhaps some of you are in them now, or you have been in them in the past, in which it was very likely for your mind to entertain the truth that it is that you have been forgotten of God. We see here that the Lord is a ruler who remembers. This cupbearer and baker are part of Pharaoh's cabinet, his administration. It's not right to think of a cupbearer as someone who just simply um, squeezes grapes or makes wine. And it's not right to think of this other baker as simply someone who just cooks food or bakes cakes. These are particularly offices at Pharaoh's uh, charge. Um, for example, the, the, the uh, baker might be what we call a department of agriculture. Right? He was responsible for not just uh, feeding Pharaoh, uh, he was responsible for all uh, the produce throughout Egypt. Everything that was made, everything that was done, making sure particularly that Pharaoh's food and drink wasn't poisoned, but also the administration of all the food and drink uh, throughout the empire. Pharaoh can't manage all that. No one can manage all sorts of things like that. Our government, bureaucracies, large corporations, all organizations are trickled down from upper management to little, little management so that the little details don't forget, get forgotten. Someone in higher management has to look at the whole big picture and someone in lower management has to manage a particular department because none of us have an ability to actually see it all from beginning to end. The danger is that we interpret God that way. The danger is that we understand our life is small, 
our problems are little, and God might not just really kind of know, not care, not really be intimately involved or remembering me. Imagine Joseph's reality of being in this prison. If you've ever been in a prison of any sort, physical, metaphysical, or whatever metaphor you want to play to that, there is a good tendency to think, I am forgotten. Especially when, and here in Joseph's case, he is completely forgotten. But as we've heard before, if you were here last week, we did do an uh, explanation. Uh, Charlie, Hannah, ruling out here, explained a Joshua stone. The history of this church. The idea of when Israel crossed the Red Sea or when Israel crossed the Jordan River, they were put to remembering these events. To have stones stacked up, not so that God would forget how he saved them, but that we would not forget how he saved them. And when you go out this church building and you look to the left, you'll see a stone, an old stone from a barn, etched inside and built inside of this modern stone uh, that was built on this building to remember the property that was given here. Um, to remember all that happened here, all the ministry that's happened in this church and will happen in this church was a work of God's hands. It is a stone to remember because it is so easy to forget when um, yesterday morning, uh, my wife uh, was with the children outside on the deck. It was a beautiful, uh, sunny day. Uh, and she wanted to just meditate on Scripture, the Word of God. Uh, and she asked me if I would go uh, and get her a Bible. Uh, because uh, sometimes she'll read uh, the Word uh, and meditate and pray uh, just simply through the Scriptures that are on her phone. And her friend was charging. and said, could you just get me a Bible somewhere? And in our back room, there's a shelf that has books on it. And I thought, well, maybe I could find one there. Um, and as books usually accumulate on shelves, I found one random Bible I've never seen before. Uh, it was a hardback uh, red Bible. Um, I don't know where we got it. Don't know how it happened. I picked it up and just gave it to her. I said, here's one. Read this. Uh, she opened it, and it was her Bible from grade school. And it had notes in there. It had an introduction on the front cover when it was dedicated to her as a small girl. Forgetting all of that, do you forget what the Lord has done in your life? You forget all the years that God has spoken to you, all the years that He has provided for you, every meal you've ever had and every shirt you've ever worn, forgotten, not by Him. Though in the midst of that one moment in which we are in the deepest and the darkest, the midst of that one moment we're in prison, then we think, he has forgotten me. But in reality, we have forgotten him every day. Every day of our life that I can't remember that he's been providing for me. He has not forgotten us. We forget him. So here is Joseph. Here is Joseph. We're told, the very first verse, that there is this time that he was in prison. It says, some time after. However long he's in prison, we don't know. But some time after has elapsed, and he is in prison. And it just so happened that a cupbearer and the baker, the chief baker, have committed an offense against the king of Egypt. And they are found there to be these two great officials within the cabinet of Pharaoh, presented before Joseph. And Joseph is appointed, out of anyone else, appointed to tend to them. Just so happened. 
Now, the reality of all this is to know that Joseph is serving people. It is amazing when you read through the scriptures that everybody has faults. Everybody's doing something wrong. Even King David had his great failures. But when you read the story of Joseph, it's just remarkable. Like, he's always doing it well. In the midst of this deep and dark moment in his life, just serving these other men. He comes to them. That next morning, after the dream, they have a dream of the king of Egypt. And he comes in the morning and says, Why is your face troubled? Why are you downcast today? Why should he care? I'm miserable. I'm in prison. You're in prison with me. So what? No. You see, in every circumstance God has placed you, high or low, the only posture you need to worry to have is, Lord, what would you have of me? I'm in prison. Okay, these people are here. They don't look too happy. Let me love them. Let me extend myself to them. What's wrong with you? Let me not talk about myself. How are you today? Why are you downcast today? And he goes immediately in. It's like he just can't help it. Anyone near him, he lowers himself to them and serves them and puffs them forward. It's an amazing image. An amazing image to remember for our lives. Joseph serves them. And these Egyptian men say, we've had troubling, troubling dreams. Why is your face downcast? There are three sets of couples of dreams in Joseph's story. Joseph starts off with two dreams of his own. In which he is told that he will have his brothers bow down to him through uh, sheaves of wheat. And then the same dream is given to him again through stars. Another couple here. We have two men, two dreams. Similar, different. Next chapter we'll see two more dreams. In which Pharaoh will have two dreams, a couple. Dreams upon dreams upon dreams. This whole story of Joseph is what is going on in this life of his? How can it be interpreted? All these dreams are time chambers. They are important in the ancient world, particularly very important to ancient Egyptians, that dreams needed interpretation. So they say their trouble is, we've had these dreams and we want to know why. They aren't just dreams that went away, they're dreams that bothered us, that stuck with us. We believe the gods are speaking to us. We believe there's something uh, to be discerned into our futures because of these dreams. We need an interpretation for them. And the confidence and the confession of Joseph here is remarkable. Remember, he had his own dreams. Have you ever had any dreams? Have you ever had any plans for your life? His dreams and his present reality do not seem to synthesize, harmonize, cohere. They don't work. And as these men come to him trouble with their dreams, he simply says, do not all dreams, are not all their interpretations of God? Do you realize what he just said? For he knew his dreams and his interpretations that he should be exalted above his brothers and put in a place of great position and honor. And while he's in prison, he says, by the way, isn't God always right in all his interpretations of dreams? Do you see that confidence that he has? Do you see what he knows? This confidence, is it yours? Is it mine? 
Is your life so good that you would say it is like a dream? Is your life so bad that you would say it is like a nightmare? It doesn't matter. You see, it doesn't matter. The good news, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, is that all interpretations belong to God. And you are not permitted to interpret your life, your dreams, your future, fortune, fate, future, outside of the context of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not permitted to interpret your life outside of that context, outside of that frame. We are told, you need to hear, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law could not do in reconciling us to him in the weakness of our own flesh. He took on flesh, a flesh, a sinful flesh like us, but made it righteous. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. There is therefore now no condemnation for us. There's no way to interpret your life in that fashion. There is no way to interpret your life as being a condemnation. Whether your life is a dream, whether your life is a nightmare, it has to end well. It has to go well for you. That is, you see how Joseph is functioning in the middle of his prison sentence, saying, the Lord's interpretation, it is the right one. As his present existence matches nothing with the interpretation of his own dreams. Of what God has given him for his end destiny. Do you realize that you and I walk in that same reality? That we have been given great things. Do you realize Abraham's name was changed from Abram to Abraham? Exalted father to a father of a multitude. And God gave him one son. And he had to walk around with that name for the rest of his life. Father of a multitude with one son. Do you realize the Lord, the gospel, what has been given to you is you need to lean into this. You need to accept that he has spoken wonderful things upon you and you only see them now dimly through a glass. Do you have the same confidence to talk like that in the prison like Joseph? God knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly where I should be. And I don't know the end. I do know the end. I don't know how I'm going to get there. But I know I'm supposed to love, serve, sacrifice, give. And this is all he does. These false gods that we have, they rob us of this joy. We've mentioned before this false god of the Mariah, the three fates. The idea that you should see your life fated. The idea that you should see your life as a spindle that is spun and the orientation of your life comes off that spindle and is drawn out and then this one little incident in your life will be cut and your whole life will be put together in a deterministic fashion of people who do not care or love or know you. We do not worship this kind of God. Now you realize that this kind of view of life is exactly the life that everyone thinks of in our present culture. The idea that we would be spun by the processes of blind naturalistic determinism. That is, that it is the cosmos, right? Not Christ that created you. The cosmos created you. The spindle of your life was spun with a double helix of your DNA. And you are who you are because the cosmos has spit you out. And the cosmos will consume you. 
And if you cry, and if you suffer, if you go to prison, well, the clouds also rain too. And you're no different than a cloud. For it is all just the cosmos. Who cares? Who knows? You fill out your fate, and then you wrap it up and die. That is literally the world in which you and I live. The postmodern secular America. That is our world. These lies are the lies that people live for. How do you interpret anything? It's not the cosmos, but Christ. The cosmos does not care for you. The cosmos does not know you. And sure enough, I promise you, the cosmos does not remember you in your prison sentence. You are nothing but complicated dust from stars. What a lie. What a lie. Deterministic fate. The false god of fortune. This applies so closely here as we see we're approaching close to Pharaoh's cabinet, his council, his throne room. See, fortune, fortuna was that god in ancient Rome that meant the blindfolded woman who bestows good upon you. You can't rhyme it, you can't reason it, but sometimes people just get a better lot in life. You see how evil that is? That wicked idol. Do you ever think in your life, why is it so much easier for that person? Why does that person get that over there? How come that person was uh, blessed by fortune? How come that person has the things that I don't? How come it works in the Ten Commandments? So we should never think that thought ever of covetousness, the Tenth Commandment. Why? Christ, you have one life. And every moment of your life, everything you've been given or not given, every suffering that he's been allowed to touch you, and every blessing that has been poured out upon you, was orchestrated by Christ. For one purpose. For his ultimate glory, and for your everlasting good. You have to understand, it's not as though you could get a little bit better. You can't do better than you're doing now. The life that God has given you is the life that you should be living. If he wanted you to be a millionaire, you'd be a millionaire. And if that would be enough for your own wicked heart to turn away from Christ, then that would be your condemnation. If he wants a very, very wealthy, godly Christian, then he'll give him a million dollars and let that as well. But God will give you what you want or what you won't want based upon the covenant relation you have in Christ. And if you're in Christ, exactly what you have at every moment of your life is for your good. It has to be this way. Embrace it. Don't look to the left or the right and envy someone else's better lot. Your lot is your best lot. The exact thing that God has given you is because it has to go this way. He cannot give you too much, you deny him. He cannot give you too little that you curse him. He gives you exactly what you need to bring you into his throne room of glory. He's concerned about you being with him in everlasting bliss. So what you have is what you need. If you can't think this way, well, you'll never speak like Joseph in the prison cell. Does not all interpretation belong to God? Hasn't he done everything perfectly right? Couldn't you say that? Even on your deathbed, he has done me so well. 
This chief baker and the chief cupbearer, well, they spill their heart out before Joseph because he shows him that he cares. He says, in my dream, in my dream, I dreamt of a vine. There were three branches, and what came from those branches ripened quickly. I pressed them quickly. I put them in the cup. I took that cup and I handed it to Pharaoh. Oh, you have to see what's going on here. You have to see what's going on here. Again, speaking about Fortuna, the goddess of fortune, there was a phrase in ancient Rome called the luck of Caesar. It stood to reason, imagine in that way of thinking, that obviously fortune, lady luck, the blindfolded lady that just throws out good things every once in a while to random people, managed to land very well on this man named Caesar. Because he is the highest head of all the heads. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's the highest man in the whole empire. He obviously has been given by the goddess fortune. He's won his battles. He's been successful. He's been influential. He's been wealthy. He is the best. So the phrase developed, which was called the luck of Caesar. You need to get to luck of Caesar. And if you can get the luck of Caesar, particularly if Caesar can be favorable to you, a little bit of that fortune will trickle down economics to you. And you can maybe get a little bit of luck if you can get the luck of Caesar. Because Caesar has the luck of Lady Luck the Fortune. That same thing is what? Pharaoh. Cupbearer. Baker. They fell out of his fortune. They fell out of his favor. It's unique that these would be the ones that have lost favor with the king. So Joseph interprets this cupbearer's dream and says, In three days, your life will be spared. Pharaoh will lift your head and he will restore you to that place of honor that you once had. And you will take that cup and you will put it in his hand. Now remember me. Don't ask men to remember you. They will fail you. Remember me that I might have some fortune from Pharaoh. That I'm in this prison cell. Oh wait. He calls it a pit. Like the pit his brothers threw him in. Joseph knows that God is right. He knows that God's interpretations upon his life are correct. But he is not escapist. He's not lying to himself. I'm in this pit. My brothers put me here. Could you have Pharaoh remember me? Maybe he'll give me some fortune, some luck. But don't trust men to do that for you. We're told that Joseph stayed two more years in prison after this event. So, the chief baker finds a good interpretation he just heard. And he says, well, let me tell you my dream. And he has three baskets of cakes upon his head. The top one is being eaten by birds. Joseph says very clearly, this isn't good. Bad diagnosis from the dream doctor. Three baskets, he says, or three days. 
Pharaoh will lift your head from you. You will be hanged, cursed in Deuteronomy as to hang on a tree. Jesus. This man is cursed. But Jesus also gets to interpret his own life too. And so in three days, these things were fulfilled. What it was was the birthday of Pharaoh. It could be his biological birthday or probably just an anniversary of his coronation when he became king. And it was, as it is kind of in our culture, that there could be an emancipation given uh, by how a president could emancipate people or free them of guilt. Uh, And also, uh, Pharaoh did the same on his birthday. He brought all his servants together, had a big party, and he made these decisions for these two men only three days later, in which he did lift up the head of the cupbearer and lift off the head of the baker. The interpretation was right. You realize here, everything in biblical prophecy, unlike ancient mysticism or even other religions, it is either falsifiable or verifiable. Prophetic interpretations have to come out in reality. If it did not happen as Joseph said, then it was not an appropriate interpretation. That's more than Freud. That's more than modern psychoanalytic theory where you just take on different various interpretations and think, I think your dream means this. Well, I think my dream is like that. And I think I had bad pizza. But it doesn't really matter. Because we don't live in the world of the scriptures in which there's veracity, there's truth. If the interpretation does not come out, it is false. Because anyone could obviously make a dream interpretation as long as you don't get to check me on it. And here it is where Joseph is saying and demonstrating The one true God has interpreted this through me correctly. Correctly. And so what he says comes to pass. Now, we're told that particularly the cupbearer did not remember Joseph. Did not remember him down there in that jail cell. But God remembered him. You see, it just so happened that it was the cupbearer that met Joseph. The cupbearer is not just a man who pours wine. And it's not just a man who tests the wine to make sure that it's not poisoned for the king. The cupbearer was part of the king's council, his cabinet. It was the order of wise men and magicians of ancient Egyptian dynasty. He was in that category. So you have to understand what happened here. We had an Egyptian interpreter coming to Joseph for an interpretation. The idea of the cup in Egypt in many ancient cultures was hydromancy. Hydromancy. That is divination. They're very occupied. They were very interested in knowing the future. All ancient cultures. And even today those who practice those mystic or pagan things. One particular technique that was very famous in that time was having a cup in which water was in it. And you could look at the water or have someone drink the water and whatever dregs or residual liquid is left would uh, fall down inside the cup like veins, like like a palm reading. So they would look at this and call it the cup of divination in which they would have this cup, the cup of Pharaoh, The fortunate one, the blessed one, the guy who's really lucky. If you could drink from his cup, he could give you wisdom into the future. He can show you the signs and the times for your life. So 
This man was the cupbearer to that cup of divination for a pagan king who was very powerful and wealthy. You need to see all that or you miss the story entirely. What really was going on when Joseph gave him this wisdom? The larger purpose of Joseph's life is beginning to unfold. And if God ever gives you these glimpses, and we pray for them so, in the midst of trials or torments, that the Lord would just show us, Lord, what are you doing in this? Why am I here? Why have you brought me to this point? God does not have to, but sometimes he does give us a glimpse, a hint, so that it would sustain us, to give us a reason to know. If you can know, you can go through a lot of suffering if you know what the reason for it is. And what we're having here in Joseph is the beginning of that reason unfolding. We realize that Joseph is suffering so that he would fulfill the larger frame. If we can remember from the beginning of Genesis in that Abraham will bless the nations. See, I, this is so important to remember. Our lives are like chapters. And when you're in the middle of one particular chapter, say, I don't know, chapter 40 of your life, like Genesis here, you forget that you've written things in your childhood Bible. You forget that you had a great meal yesterday evening. You forget that chapters from chapter 3 of Genesis, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. You don't interpret everything in the larger context. You forget when you're reading Genesis 40 of your life that there is a Genesis 12 of your life. That there is a man named Abraham who will be blessed and he will bless all the nations. He will bless all the nations. He will be a great multitude. He will be a kingdom. Kings will come from him. Will not Joseph be second in command? Will he not later on describe himself as being father of Pharaoh? Over Pharaoh? We're beginning to see why Joseph is this place. Your life is part of his story, not your story. If you think it's your story, it doesn't make sense. If you, in some way, are fulfilling the promises of the first pages of Scripture, it all begins to make sense. I'm supposed to glorify Him. He's supposed to be the star. At the end of the story, my life is supposed to give Him praise. And He will do that through my suffering. Joseph was supposed to be king, but he had to get into the prison system to get into the place of being a king. It had to happen this way. And the cupbearer had to come, the man of divination, pagan, cult-like divination. He had to come and be corrected by Joseph so that Joseph, this man, this Hebrew, can point him to Yahweh and says, does not interpretation belong to God? It all had to lead to that conversation. So the fortune of Pharaoh, the fortune of the Caesars are actually all supposed to be reinterpreted. God's plan of all of human history is that it would all be reinterpreted as the fortune of the Father. And so Jesus comes down and says, now I want you to stop. Stop praying to the fates. 
Stop sacrificing to cults and idols and stop looking in your stupid cups and pray this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on this earth. Lead us not into temptation. Oh Lord, and give us today every daily bread we need. For you are the one. You are our fortune. That's happening in real history. Nations pray that prayer. But all began because Joseph in a pagan Egypt said, By the way, there's only one God who interprets history. And his name is Yahweh. And that storyline is still playing itself out. He had to suffer this way. So that you and I would be here preaching the gospel. We are tempted to understand interpretations as frames in a picture. We can't see the outer frame of our life. Particularly when you're suffering, you only see the very narrow frame. And you interpret everything between your relationship with God and relationship to men in that suffering. That larger frame needs to come out and be expanded. And I want to share a story. So that we would see this. That all interpretations belong to God. The interpretation of your life is a frame inside of a frame inside of a frame. But there's only the final frame that matters. The frame of God's consummate intentions for all of human history. And until you're privy to that knowledge, you're never going to understand. But fortunately, through the gospel, we have been given, though in a glass dimly, and though maybe in not all the detail we would wish, we've been given enough to know it's going to end for your good. All things have to work together for your good. Because Jesus has died and rose again. In the very beginning of the church, one of the apostolic fathers, his name was Polycarp. We say apostolic father. In church history, that's somewhat of a technical term to mean those people who were discipled by the apostles themselves. So from the time of scripture, the very next generation under. Closest you can get to the apostle John, Paul, or any of the others is through the apostolic fathers. Polycarp happened to be discipled by the apostle John. Who wrote the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation. Polycarp was his student. We're given a letter called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. They came for him, this old man, who was a pillar in the church. Roman authorities wanted to put him to death because of his influence. His ability to turn people away from pagans, pagan idols. And so they were chasing him as... Polycarp was actually found hiding in an attic in the house. Soldiers came, he heard them, and he just came down and turned himself in. And he said to them, before we go, you're probably hungry. Let me cook you some food. Because when you hang out with the Apostle John, this is how you do ministry. And so he made them food and they ate. And he said, now while you're eating, would you please permit me two hours to pray? And then we can be on our way. And they said, sure. (laughs) You made food after all. And so he prayed for two hours. 
Pray for God to give him strength for what lied ahead of his life. Because he didn't need a dream to interpret what the next few chapters would be. They took him to the governor at an arena. They burnt him, stabbed him, and killed him. But before they did that to him, he had a conversation, we're told in the letter, with this governor. As he was on the way, though, we should add that the soldiers tried to reason with him. Said, come now to Polycarp. Where is the harm in just saying Caesar is Lord? If you just say that, we'll leave you alone. What's the harm, they say, in saying Caesar is Lord and offering incense? It will save your life. And he wouldn't be persuaded, of course. He gets to the governor, and the dialogue with the governor in this arena, in which he will soon be killed, the governor says, Have respect for your years, you old man, and swear an oath by the luck of Caesar. We're told in this letter from the first century. It was offered to him. You're in the position of weakness, you know. The Caesar, the God he serves, he's the mighty man. If you swear by his luck, I'm sure we can work something out. And he responds saying, 86 years I've served him, meaning God. Polycarp said, he has done me no wrong. You know the modern evangelical would be baffled. I can't believe I'm going to be killed for Jesus. I thought it was supposed to go well for me. I feel that God has lied to me and therefore all the promises aren't true. And modern day Christians talk about deconstructing their faith. And Polycarp's ready to die. And he says, he's done me no wrong. I, I don't see anything wrong with this. What, you're going to kill me? Okay, but that wasn't part of the game. I didn't, that wasn't part of the gospel. He's done me no wrong, 86 years. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? The governor responds. Well, no, Polycarp responds and says, if you still think I'm going to swear by Caesar's luck, let me present to you now that I am a Christian. I am a Christian. And then at the end of the story, we're told that it was framed again for us. Closing this way, we understand that the man who wrote this story, who followed Polycarp's name was Marcion. And he ended the letter this way, and I need you to hear the end of this letter. He gives it the exact timeline and historical accuracy to say... As he was burnt and then stabbed to death. It was the second day of the first fortnight of the sixth month. There's a frame. He's framing the letter. The official responsible for the arrest, his name was Herod. An outer frame of his martyrdom. The high priest who was there that day was Philip Trowles, the proconsul. Third frame. And usually in dating letters, the next thing you mention is the Caesar. And the final frame of this man's dying day. But the ruling monarch was Jesus Christ, who reigns forever and ever. Interpreting his suffering in that. That to your last breath, you will die under the lordship of Jesus. Whether by the hands of evil men or on a hospital bed, you will die, and it will say on your death date, 
in the year that the Lord Jesus Christ ruled the earth. For he is his own interpreter. Dear Father God, we pray that we would have the wisdom, first, the humility to hear your word and to believe it by faith, though our eyes might be lying to us. And then the grace to be convinced of it, as we would simply humbly trust you, so that we would be free to not interpret our life. That is not our job. We don't have the wisdom to interpret our life. But you have interpreted our life for us and all of our dreams until that final day. That you are the Lord who reigns forever and ever. And all things must work together for our good. In Jesus' mighty name we confess. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please stand.